our stars. Try and fuse the public enemies, bring a reign of terror, and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. And welcome to the Mobcast, the only crime podcast that focuses not just on murder, but on extortion and robbery as well. In this episode, you'll hear part one of a battle that was really the first of its kind for the Italian-American Mafia in the United States, and would actually end up shaping what we now know as the Mafia, as depicted in pop culture. The Castello-Morisse War would be the catalyst into giving structure to the phenomenon known as organized crime. And so, let's get started. Na cupulella che vi si era aizzata, passa scampagnando pattuleta, con mano a papata fa guardare. Tu fa l'americano, americano, americano, sienta me chi tu fa fa, tu vuoi vivere alla moda, ma se bevi, whisky and soda. The name of that song was Tu Vofal Americano, which is Italian for You Want to Be an American. This song is somewhat relevant to the Castellamorese War. At least it's the most relevant one that I could find that's in the public domain. The singer of the song is talking about an Italian who has started to pick up what's considered to be typically American traits, such as drinking whiskey and soda and watching baseball, which are not exactly what people did in Italy. At least, not in 1952, when the song was recorded, and definitely not back in 1929, when the Castellamorese War broke out. At its core, the Castellamorese War was both a battle for territorial dominance, as much as it was a battle over deeply held cultural rivalries. It would also serve to provide a more clear divide between the mafiosos that clung to their Italian identity versus the ones that embraced a new sort of identity, as not so much Italians, but rather Italian-Americans. What will become increasingly clear throughout the podcast is I'm not very good at pronouncing Italian words. And so, instead of saying Castellamorese War, I will simply just refer to it as The War, a name that is pretty fitting since it was this war that was the first war, and arguably the most important war, for the American Mafia. A term that has come to refer to all of Italian-American organized crime in America, both current and historical. However, in order to understand the war, it's important to know that there were numerous factions within the Italian-American immigrant community, and therefore different crime families that came 
out of these communities, who viewed each other as having no more in common than they did with the Irish over in Hell's Kitchen. You see, the roots of these factions go all the way back to Italy, where these regional factions originated. That is to say, each region had its own clan, and these clans were very loyal to their own kind, and subsequently, very wary of outsiders. This was in part due to the history of Italy itself. You see, centuries of foreign powers attempting to take over your land will naturally predispose you to be very cautious of outsiders. And due to Italy being a peninsula, this was exacerbated, as each coast would find itself vulnerable to invasions coming from the sea, which would eventually develop into a sort of individual tribe mentality for each coast. A mentality that was carried over by the Italians immigrating to America, and hence why there was such deep-seated contentions between the crime families that would form in the Italian communities throughout the 20th century. The crime syndicate that formed from the Sicilian faction is frequently referred to, incorrectly, as the Black Hand. However, the Black Hand was not actually a group. The Black Hand was a method of extortion. The Black Hand tactic involved sending a letter to a victim threatening bodily harm, kidnapping, arson, or murder. And then the letter would demand a specified amount of money to be delivered to a specific place to avoid these outcomes. It was decorated with threatening symbols, usually, like a smoking gun or a hangman's noose, and officially signed with a hand imprinted in black ink. Hence, where the name actually came from, La Mano Nera, Italian for the Black Hand, which was readily adopted by the American press as the Black Hand Society, hence why it is usually depicted as a certain group. The term ended up becoming sort of a blanket term for both the Neapolitan group of Italian immigrants who came from Naples and the Castellamari, who were a clan from Sicily. And the fact that these two were mixed up by the American press was a bit ironic, because these two groups absolutely hated each other. And it would actually be these two groups that would be the primary forces in the war. At the helm of the Sicilian Castellamari clan was a man named Salvatore Maranzano, who I will go into more detail about during the next episode. For this episode, I'm going to focus on the background of the Neapolitan leader, a man by the name of Giuseppe Masseria, who would more commonly become known as Joe Masseria once he came to the United States. Joe Masseria was born in January of 1886 in Naples. He was an only child, and his father worked simply as a tailor. And it was not until 1902 that a 16-year-old Masseria would immigrate to the United States in order to avoid indictment for murder. You see, at the time, there was no extradition treaty between Italy and the United States, so the United States provided a sort of safe haven for criminals like Masseria. And this was actually common enough to warrant a label. These types such as Masseria and later Salvatore Maranzano were known as Mustache Pete's, which was a way of referring to the 
old world Italian mafiosos who really stuck to the Italian identity and were generally coming to America to avoid prosecution rather than persecution or looking for any type of opportunity other than that of the criminal nature. But I cannot stress this enough, this was a very, very, very small minority of the Italians that were immigrating to America. And they were more so criminals who happened to be Italian. But while he had still been in Italy, Masseria had worked as a small-time thug, and so naturally, he searched for a similar gig in America. He quickly found work as an enforcer for the Morello crime family, who controlled Harlem and a chunk of Little Italy, which was located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I actually have an entire episode dedicated to the Morello crime family that I recommend listening to, as it provides a background of what the overall gang landscape was like in New York at the turn of the 20th century. But here is a brief overview of what the landscape of New York City looked like in 1902. There were five dominant Italian-American crime families that would remain dominant for decades. And the number five was not preordained by any kind of logistical reasoning. It just happened that way as the Italian immigrants coming to America during the early 20th century settled in the five boroughs of New York City. The Italian immigrants that were coming to America would stick to their clan from the specific region of Italy that they were coming from, which was a very common phenomenon amongst the immigrants, such as the Irish in Hell's Kitchen and the Eastern European Jews along the Bowery. And so, as the Italians settled in the five boroughs of New York City, the more criminally inclined members of these communities would inevitably band together to form five different crime families, which were laid out like this. There's a family led by Tommy Reyna that controlled the Bronx. On the Brooklyn waterfront was a group led by Al Mineo. Then there was a much smaller family that operated out of neighborhoods in both Brooklyn and Staten Island. This family was under the leadership of Joe Profaci. In the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn was the tightly knit clan, the Castellamarie Sicilians who were led by Cola Shiro. And then, of course, there was the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was actually the largest family and was almost entirely Neapolitans. This was the Morello crime family, which, which Joe Masseria would eventually come to control. However, before this meteoric rise to power, Joe Masseria was just a 16-year-old, and he had to get an entry-level thug job within the Morello organization, which at the time was led by Giuseppe Morello himself. Masseria's time as a soldier for the Morello family coincided with them expanding their control, eventually consolidating power over Upper Manhattan, Lower Manhattan, and a pretty sizable chunk of Harlem. The Morellos ran the numbers rackets throughout these areas, and also participated in the standard loan sharking and robbery to generate their revenue. Masseria found himself working a new type of job, though, one that was actually pioneered, or perhaps just popularized, in America by the Morello crime family. This job was making collections from the local store owners in their territory for protection, both by the gang and from it. This 
kind of low-scale extortion was done through weekly pickups of a collection fee. Those who didn't want to pay this fee had a pretty bad habit of finding their limbs broken or their store torch to the ground. This type of small-scale extortion was driven by the same sentiment of you can shear a sheep a thousand times, but only kill it once. If the gang were to rob a store, it ran the risk of putting that store out of business. But this way, they were able to have an ongoing stream of revenue over long periods of time. Joe Masseria was assigned collections around Italian Harlem, where he was very feared, but also well-respected by the community. He was known to help out widows with children by bringing them groceries, although it's safe to say that these groceries were probably not paid for. Joe Masseria came to be known to have sort of a explosive temper, which seems to be a pretty common theme amongst the various mafiosos and mob characters that I cover in this podcast. But whereas other gangsters, such as Oni Madden, were just batshit crazy, Joe Masseria was more calculated in his explosive anger, or at least as calculated as you can be. And it would be this calculating ability, along with his respect that he had garnered within his community, that really allowed him to begin to gain power. Around 1916, after the murder of Nicky Morello, the younger brother of Giuseppe Morello, who was currently doing a 10-year bid in prison. And the murder of Nicky Morello essentially marked the end of the Morello's control over the very crime family that bore their name, because it was after Nicky's death that Masseria and several others from the gang broke off and formed their own splinter groups, each maneuvering for control of the Morello territory. This would naturally lead to some contention, and Masseria found himself in a pretty bitter and dangerous rivalry with another former Morello associate, Salvatore D'Aquila. After the partial dissolution of the Morellos, D'Aquila had gone off on his own and had successfully become the leader of his own Brooklyn-based gang. In fact, D'Aquila had become extremely powerful quite quickly due to his perceived wisdom, which was a rare trait for mafiosos at the time, were more known for their utter brutality. Within just two years of Nicky Morello getting whacked, D'Aquila was said to have become the consigliere among the top New York Mafia families. As consigliere, D'Aquila was said to use his wisdom to consult the families, who would come to him for advice if there was ever a problem that could not simply be solved with a few bullets. Though that's not to say that D'Aquila had any real control over any of these families, but his assistance was well regarded and he was paid well. Four years after Nicky Morello had been shot dead and many of the former Morello captains had gone in their own directions, Giuseppe Morello was finally released from prison in 1920. D'Aquila, in his superior wisdom, quickly realized that the threat that Giuseppe Morello posed to his newfound position of power. If Morello was to successfully consolidate his stray captains, then he would essentially be inheriting all of the men that each of these captains currently had control over. And therefore, D'Aquila saw no other option than to stifle Morello's comeback, and to set out to have him and several of his top associates murdered, just for good measure. The person who D'Aquila would order to go about whacking Morello 
and his top associates would be a captain of his own named Rocco Valenti. Valenti would spare no time getting started. And on May 8th, 1922, Valenti and his gunmen put eight bullets into Giuseppe Morello's other brother, Vincent, who at the time of his death was actually meeting with Joe Masseria, who escaped unscathed. Two days later, on May 10th, 1922, Valenti and his gunmen would ambush Masseria again, but again he managed to escape. And so this second unsuccessful attempt would prompt Valenti to take a step back and lay low, to plan a better attack than a simple ambush. And so two months later, on August 9th, 1922, Masseria escaped death once more, when he was rushed by two men after walking out of his apartment. Both of his bodyguards would die in the crossfire, but Masseria hid in a store on 2nd Avenue, while the gunmen fired several rounds at the store before running out of ammunition. The gunmen would then flee down the street to an awaiting getaway car and drive off. When the police found Masseria in his apartment after the shooting, they actually found two bullet holes in his straw hat, evidence that the gunmen were pretty damn close to killing him, and that Masseria was in fact very lucky to have escaped. Word quickly got around about this shooting and about Masseria's bullet-ridden straw hat, and so the gangsters from around New York began describing Joe Masseria as the man who can dodge bullets, which further added to his criminal credibility. In September 1922, one month after the third murder attempt, Masseria was getting pretty sick of this, and he might have been pretty angry about his straw hat, because he organized a sit-down that was supposed to be with the other captains from the faction splintered off from the original Morello crime family, with the purpose of peacefully divvying up the Morello territory. At least, that's how the sit-down had been advertised. In reality, this was a part of a very carefully crafted plan by Joe Masseria. He knew that Rocco Valenti would catch word of this sit-down, and naturally would show up, due to some discordance between Valenti and Deocula, which had cut Valenti out of Deocula's organization. And so Valenti was searching for territory of his own, factors that Joe Masseria had taken into account when devising this strategy. And so, when Rocco Valenti and two of his men arrived for the meeting, they were the only ones there, and they were greeted by three of Masseria's men. While the men chatted, Valenti began to realize that he was being set up, and the men they were speaking to were in fact Masseria hitmen. When this finally dawned, on Valenti and his two men, all three of them went for their guns. But Masseria's men were ready, and both of Valenti's men were killed instantly in a barrage of automatic weapon fire. However, Valenti managed to not get hit instantly, and he made a run for it. As he ran, the Masseria hitmen continued firing, and they hit a street sweeper and an eight-year-old girl, who just happened to be on the sidewalk at the time. Valenti tried to jump onto the side of a moving taxi cab, but one of Masseria's gunmen took aim this time and fired two shots from his revolver, instantly killing Valenti. This gunman who took these shots was named Charles Luciano, and he was one of Masseria's top men. And so, with Valenti out of the way, Masseria became the boss of what was once the Morello crime family, and 
actually reached out to Giuseppe Morello to be his number two man. And this second position worked pretty well for Giuseppe, who chose to keep a low profile while conducting his business due to his age and having already had his time at the head of the table. Plus, Morello knew that law enforcement was far more likely to go after the top spot. And so, for six years, Masseria acted as the boss of the Morello crime family and was known as a fair but very vengeful leader who was not quick to forgive but was very quick to kill. He was also characterized as being pretty greedy. While he was overseeing the Morello operations, there was a pretty significant increase in how much the neighborhood businesses would have to pay for protection. In fact, for most of the businesses that didn't have some sort of side deal with Masseria, it was double, which is naturally going to upset some of the older shop owners who may have had worked out something with Giuseppe Morello in the past. Specifically, one instance where a grocery store owner went to Giuseppe Morello to ask Morello to try and reason on his behalf to Masseria. It is not known exactly what Morello said to Masseria, but what is known is Masseria's reaction to this, as he torched the grocery store, above which the owner lived with his wife and four children, a fact that supposedly Masseria was very well aware of when he ordered it to be burned. Now, despite this cruelty to his own constituents, there was very little trouble between the other New York crime families and Masseria during the years after he became boss. For the most part, the families were more interested in making money rather than fighting to settle disputes. But the presence of Masseria's soon-to-be well-known gluttony came into the spotlight after the death of Frankie Yale in 1928. You see, Frankie Yale represented a type of gangster that believed in putting business ahead of ego, just like his mentor, Johnny Torrio. This business-first disposition had made him a well-liked leader amongst his very loyal crime family, as well as being pretty popular amongst the heads of the other crime families. However, after his death, something inside of Masseria clicked, and he immediately began to position himself to become the boss of all bosses. Masseria positioned himself to take this title by acting on a long-held vendetta that he previously could not have for fear of retaliation from Frankie Yale. You see, although Valenti was bumped off back in 1922, Daacula was still around and actually held the title of boss of all bosses, although in reality he was actually just the consigliere of all of the bosses. And even in that position, he had begun to fall out of favor with the heads of the other families. And since Masseria was very much aware of the fact that it was Deacula who had put Valenti up to the task of killing him, it was not actually until October 28th that he would finally be able to exact his revenge. Although not by his own hands, but rather by the hands of Giuseppe Morello, brother to the slain Vincent Morello, who Deacula had put the contract out for. A hatred that was made especially clear by how they found Deacula's body. You see, when a boss was normally killed, it was as a display of power, and thus was done pretty publicly, such as being gunned down in the street, or being gunned down in a cafe, or being gunned down in their apartment. 
But instead of this public display, Giuseppe Morello opted for a more subtle approach. And the specifics of what happened to Diocula in his final moments aren't exactly known. Instead, what is known is that his corpse turned up in a barrel, which had been shipped to a non-existent address in Philadelphia. It's important to note that this was not done to hide the fact that Masseria and Morello were responsible for the killing, as Masseria made it very well known that he was the one behind Ocula's death, even going so far as to appoint one of his allies, Almineo, to the head of the Diocula family, a family that he had no real claim to, yet none of which were brave enough to protest. And it would actually be the death of Diocula that would mark the end of Giuseppe Morello's career, as he wanted nothing more than to retire, or retire as much as a mafioso was able to. This departure of Morello marked the start of a massive land grab on the part of Masseria. In the middle of 1929, Masseria would take over the territories of one Anthony Carfano, who had acted as Frankie Yale's replacement at the head of the Yale crime family, a position which he held for less than six months before he was shot and killed in the street by seemingly unknown assailants. Although there were whispers that it was actually Masseria's top man, Charlie Luciano, who was responsible for the killing of Carfano. But these whispers stayed whispers, as it became clear that opposing Masseria was not very good for one's health. And so, after Carfano's death, the entire Yale family came under control of Joe Masseria, who had now earned the moniker of Joe the Boss, which was fitting, as he was now the head of the largest mafia family in New York City. Under Masseria's command was a real who's who of notable mafioso, such as, previously mentioned, Charles Luciano, as well as Frank Costello, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, Vito Genovese, Meyer Lansky, and a young Bugsy Siegel, each of which would one day make names for themselves as the top echelon of the American Mafia. However, for now, they were merely pawns under the control of Joe Masseria, who was now setting his sights on the territory of another crime family, that of the Sicilian-based Castella Marie, a family who at the time was led by Cola Shiro, who was apparently a pretty wise man, as when he heard about Masseria's plan to take over his territory, instead of fighting, he simply paid Masseria $10,000 and then went into hiding, which is sort of a optimistic guess, as the only thing that was definitely known was that he was never seen or heard from again. After Shiro's disappearance, Masseria attempted to install his own leadership to the head of the Castellamarie family, specifically an associate of his named Joe Perino, a decision made by Masseria that he justified by very publicly vocalizing his beliefs that the Castellamarie were a bunch of unintelligent country bumpkins, a characterization based in Masseria's Neapolitan roots. Remember, these two groups did not like each other in Italy, and absolutely did not like each other in America. The Castellamarie response 
to the appointment of Joe Perino to the head of their American crime family was direct orders for Perino to be murdered. Orders that came directly from Sicily, from the very head of the Sicilian mafia, Don Vito Ferro. Ferro had his own idea for who he wanted to take charge of the American branch of his crime syndicate. A man who had actually come to America three years earlier and had spent his time laying low, primarily due to the fact that he had come to America to escape murder charges. The name of this mustache Pete was Salvatore Maranzano. However, before Maranzano had even fully sit down at the head of the table of the Castella Marie crime family, Joe Masseria had put a contract on his life, the act of which marked the formal beginning of the Castellamarise War. To be continued in part two.